I want to start off by sharing with you a little bit of history, the history that took place in the first century after Jesus. And uh, so much happened there, and I think when we understand the history a little bit more, better, we also have a greater grasp as to what the church went through, their decisions they made as they went through those hard times, and how they kept on glorifying God, how they ended their race. You'll see many times today, the moment people fall on hard times, they get angry at God. You always have one or two things. People drift from God, hard times come, they run back to God. Or some people are with God, hard times come, and they walk away from God. But here, most people tend to walk away from God when things are easy. However, things aren't going to remain easy forever. Uh, times will change, seasons will change. The only thing constant is change. And as we look on the horizon, we see the writing on the wall. We see the, the times are turning, the seasons are changing. And so we have to know what it means to plan for our eventual victory. We have to, we have to know what it means to stay the course, what it means to endure. The Bible says, He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom at all. Paul also said for, to, about those who drifted from the gospel and those who abandoned the gospel and abandoned the body of Christ and abandoned the kingdom of God, Paul pointed to them and said, when they left us, it is a proof or sign of the fact that they were never actually part of us. They were never actually with us. So it's very important for us to realize this up front. When we decided to follow Jesus, we didn't sign up for luxury. We signed up to a battle. That's why Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. Amen? And I believe that God is calling together His sheep, calling together those whom He foreknew, calling to together those He predestined, calling, to the, calling together those that He calls through the gospel and those whom He justified. By the way, I've said it a few times, just so you know, that is what we call in Scripture the golden chain of salvation. And I'll quote it to you again. Those whom He foreknew, or you might translate it, those whom He forelove prior to even creating the earth, before He created you, He foreloved you, He loved you before He created you. Those whom He foreloved, He also predestined, He predestined you, those whom He predestined, He also called. How does He call you? Through the gospel. You heard the gospel and you went, that's me. I need to respond. And those whom He called, he, those He also justified through the cross. Nobody else. Just those He justified through the cross. Folks, Jesus will never fail at His mission. He told God, I have not lost one whom You gave me. Not one will Jesus lose. Nobody can rip you from the hand of God. If you are full loved, predestined, called by God, no one can rip you from God. And then he says, those whom he called, he also justified with the cross. And those whom he justified, he also glorifies in Christ. You live in Christ. And you will live forever in Christ. Amen. It's a golden chain of salvation. But let's understand how it is that some endured to the end, but others did not. 
Some believe, and I'll go here first, that, you know, the tribulation is happening. There's a seven-year tribulation. Before the seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a rapture. Jesus is going to show up. Others believe Jesus will show up in the middle of the tribulation, which is seven years. So in other words, two and a half years within the tribulation, Jesus will show up and rip out the church from the world. Others believe that He will come after the fact, the post-trip people. And uh, all these people have... Um, disagreements about when Jesus will return. Somebody said, the thousand years of peace is a doctrine Christians love to fight over. That's supposed to be funny. But the post-tribulation group believe uh, that Jesus will come after the fact for many reasons, but one of them is over the fact that Nero, who ruled in the first century after Jesus, during the life of the apostle Paul, was actually named the beast. That's the name they gave this guy, the beast. Because he was like an animal. This ruler had no one he gave an account to. He blew off the senate. He was a madman. Many things I can't mention that he did, but he loved to dress himself like an animal, tie people up naked and attack them. As crazy as that, where he would rip off with his mouth, even privates. This man was completely insane, killed his own mother, kicked to death his wife before she could give birth. Married a boy, a young boy, castrated him, put him in a veil, and married him because the boy reminded him of his wife that he murdered. This man was insane. You know, the more I see these things, we always love to point to Hitler as being the most evil of evil. But there have been some evil people in the world. And that really fits so well with the reformed theology of total depravity. Nobody else has the answer to every atheist debater that asks us how can a good God allow so much evil. Nobody can debate them other than reformers who can prove scripturally that fallen man is not as evil as he could be, but as depraved totally and completely. In other words, total depravity is not that doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. You could be much, much worse than you already are. Now, I know that you are much worse than, you, than I think, and I am much worse than you think. That's why I love how Charles Spurgeon says, if, somebody's, if somebody thinks little of you, don't get angry at them because you're much worse than what that person thinks you are. <laughs> so you might as well relax when somebody criticizes you. You're worse than what they think. We are totally depraved, the Bible says, and when we fell into sin, we had eyes, but we couldn't see. We had ears, but we couldn't hear. We had a heart, but we couldn't respond. We were dead in our sins. We were dead. Romans says that we all together became worthless. Jesus then comes, and He, he sees you as a fallen, broken, evil human depraved in every part of who you are. Again, you're not as bad as you could be. You are just 
touched by sin in every part of that you are. Your mind has been touched by sin and corrupted. Your heart was touched by sin and corrupted. Your emotions have been touched by sin and corrupted. Your body has been touched by sin and now fades away, breaks down and dies. The earth is touched by sin. That's why when you create a garden, you don't have to plant weeds. They come up all by themselves. You have to fight the natural bent of the ground in order to create a beautiful garden. You have to keep it. If you take a child, you don't have to teach a child to lie. It's natural. We are born with that nature. You don't have to teach a child to have a bad attitude. They are, we are born with that nature of sin. That's why we sin. Most people think we are sinners because we sin. Nope. The Bible says we sin because we are sinners. We have a depraved, fallen nature. And God, while we were yet His enemy and we shook our fist at Him, He chose us. He foreknew us, loved us, He chose us, He predestined us, and then He justified us after He called us, and now He glorifies us, and that's why all glory goes to God, none to us. Now that is grace plus anything is no longer grace. But when you look at the depravity of man, you see it boiling over in the life of this man by the name Nero. And many scholars believe that Post-tribulation scholars believe that the Apostle John, while he was penning the book of Revelation, when he talked about the beast, he was talking about this man, Nero, that was so absolutely crazy, perverted, and evil was cruel to the nth degree. Never seen anything like this in history. So following a completely debased lifestyle, this man who, be, who came to power at the age 18 committed suicide at the, at the age 30. And following this complete debased lifestyle, Nero then, June 9th, 68 AD, committed suicide. But four years earlier to his suicide, in the year 64 AD, Nero was exponentially losing his mind. Exponentially going into deeper darkness, madness. On July 18th of that year, a great fire was started, which lasted for an entire, entire week and burned down a large portion of Rome. Ancient historians who accused Nero with arson, these ancient historians whose writings we still have, accused him of larson. These historians include Pliny the Elder, Suetonius, Cassius Deo, the only ancient historian who does not blame Nero for burning down Rome is Tacitus. But he doesn't say Nero did not do it. He just said, I am not sure who did. So most historians agree Nero was responsible for burning Rome, as crazy as he was. And the city wasn't well prepared, so that's why it lasted for a whole entire week. But Nero had to put the blame somewhere in order for them to not riot against him and murder him. Therefore, he came up with this plot and he decided that the Christians, those were the ones who burnt down the city of ours. They're guilty of arson. And in one, one foul swoop, all Christians became criminals in the eyes of the government and in the eyes of the public. And it's very clear... that it was him, and not the Christians, of course. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary gives a historical background regarding persecution of the Christians during that time under Nero, and he says this, quote, In 64 AD, there was this great fire at Rome, which Nero made the pretext for his persecution of the Christians. Every cruelty was heaped upon them. Some were crucified. Some were arrayed in the skins of wild beasts and haunted to death by dogs. Angry, wild, hungry dogs were put on these Christians. Some were wrapped in pitched robes, robes dipped in tar, set on fire by night to illuminate the, the circus. That's where the word comes from. The circus of the Vatican and gardens of Nero. While the monster Nero mixed among the spectators in the garb of a charioteer. So he was a rioter. He instigated. He blamed everybody else. He would dress himself in animal skin, attack people, hide within a crowd, and uh, loved seeing Christians being ripped to pieces by these angry dogs while he, he covered the Christians in blood so that the dogs would go after them. This man was beyond what we even know in the modern world of cruelty. There is in history this uh, thought that Nero was playing the flute while watching Rome burn. The only problem is the flute was actually not available at the time. The flute only came about long after that. But what, it, what the historians do say is that he did dress up in his costumes. He was very elaborate, and he would sing as he saw the city burn. And one of the reasons was he couldn't wait to build for himself. He needed room to build for himself a larger castle, palace, and uh, he was sick and tired of the way the city looked. It was too old for him. He wanted a modern city, so he just burnt it. After this happened, the apostle Paul was arrested. So the fire took place. Paul's arrested. And uh, he's arrested on two charges. The first is that he's the instigator that burnt down the city, caused the Christians to do so. And secondly, he was arrested because he was introducing an unlawful religion to them in the day. As Paul was chained in prison in Rome, knowing that he had come to his end of his life in ministry, he then writes. So you can imagine, here is the apostle Paul, okay? I wanted to tell you the times that they lived in. When they lived on a Nero, that's when we, the church was told, make sure to pray for your leader. I can't imagine myself praying for Nero after watching him do what he did. But the church is commanded, pray for your leader so that you might live in peace. And I read through the book of Titus, and I see hardly any political you know, taste to the letter. But this is, the letter was written in 64 AD, the actual year when all of this happened. And the cruelty that then started taking place. Yet Paul, even though in prison, kept writing. And today we have all those writings of him because he was in prison under these circumstances. So when you read this, you've got to read it with that in mind. This man had every reason to believe all has failed. This man has every reason to believe that after all of his mission trips through Asia, all of the hardships, being stoned, left for dead, got back up, and the next day was evangelizing in a town, in a neighboring town. This man who have known 
hunger. He is known cold. He was shipwrecked. He, was, he went through so much tribulation and trials to build these churches who are now being crushed in a moment by a crazy man who did not deserve to live. Now he's in prison, and it almost seems like it was all worthless. All of his efforts going up in smoke, hearing about these people who responded to the gospel because he preached it, joined the church, and now is ripped apart by a dog. Hear about, hearing about that family that joined the church because he preached the gospel and got lit on fire after being tired. Hearing how these people are being crushed. He's in prison. He writes to Timothy, and he knows that the end is close. He says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I can't tell you how many times I've read that line. And I've never seen Paul struggle as he's penning this. I don't know, I'm sure you've never experienced this, but when they burn humans, it smells. A smell I have unfortunately experienced, but when they burn humans, you can, and I don't know if he, was, if he could still have that stench in his, in his nose, if he could get rid of those pictures that he had in his mind. But he pens this and he says, even while all of his work is up in smoke, he says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. He says, I have fought the good fight. It doesn't seem like it was a good fight. It seems like it was a losing battle. But he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have finished the race. It looks like he's losing the race. But he says, I have finished it. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Look at, look at how he's looking forward to What's about to happen? He says, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which, is, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to the, all those who long for His appearing. Verse 9, do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. For Demas, and this is where I'm going, hear this. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica, he left me. He didn't like this anymore. It wasn't what he was looking for. He loved the comforts of the world. He loved the message of the world. He loved what the world had to offer. And therefore, he left me. He departed. Here you have two men ministering together, Paul and Demas. You have a mentor and a mentee. You have a teacher and a student. You have a leader and a follower. One endured, finished the race, and looked forward to that crown of righteousness. The other walked away. We do not know what ultimately happened to Demas, but we never heard from him again. So in this next portion of Scriptures, could you close those door for me, please? In, the, in this next portion of Scriptures, which was written years prior, 
Paul calls demon a Demas. Didn't mean that. Paul calls Demas a fellow worker in the ministry. A fellow worker in the ministry. Philemon 23, 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And, and so do Mark, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, my fellow workers. This had to have been heart-wrenching. This had to have been beyond, I think, that we have ever experienced. <clears throat> You've experienced people disappointing you, but this must have broken Paul's heart. It is very clear that Demas was not able to continue, and it was very clear as to why he couldn't continue, because he loved this world. Because he loved this world. Because he loved this world. I want to say this before I forget. Whenever... Uh, and, I, and this has been a, such a problem for me, but, uh, and, and I might just be kicking a dead horse here, but you know when people go on TV and they have interviews and they ask the tough questions and they cannot answer scripturally and they have to duck and dive those questions. You've heard that, right? I don't know if there's actually another minister. There's two that I know of, John MacArthur being one of them that have never ducked and dived the question, he's always actually given the scriptural answer, right? But those who don't, I can't help but see. Okay, so if a person is courting the world, they are, they are, they are answering in such a way that the world would approve of them. They're answering in such a way that the world would favor them. They're answering in such a way that the world will not reject them. They're answering in such a way that the world will love them. It is proof of the fact that they are in love with the world. If you are in love with the world, you want the world to love you. If you are not in love with the world, you don't care that the world doesn't love you. <laughs> this is how you know whether you love the world or not. Are you courting the world? Are you doing what you have to do in order to be loved by people in the world? Are you answering questions the way you have to answer questions because... Standing on a scriptural answer right now is going to cause me to, to, to lose all favor with them, you know, to fall out of love with, or the world to fall out of love with me. But Demas, that guy who used to walk around and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without compromise, he started loving the world. And because of the love that he had for the world and the things of the world, which is comfort, including comfort, he fell away. There is, however, a difference between enjoying life and loving the world. You see, to enjoy life is to live it to the full. How do you live it to the full? You fulfill the potential or you fulfill the purpose that you were given. And this, to me, is such a strange thing that so many people struggle finding their purpose in life. So clearly, the Bible says that Jesus, through Him, all things that exist were created in heaven and on earth. By Him they were made, for Him they were made, and in Him they are upheld. The Bible is very clear. Through Him, by Him, for Him, in Him, that's why everything exists. And we asking the question, what's my purpose in life? Your purpose is <laughs> to glorify Him. You were made for Him. You live towards Him. That's why I love that song. 
Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. It's a hymn, so we don't do it much, but be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. God, you are my vision. I live for God. This is my purpose. But people are encouraged to find purposes elsewhere outside of God. I don't care if you're a doctor or if you're a mechanic, if you're a teacher. It doesn't matter what you are in your career path. The ultimate goal is God's glory. You can choose whatever you want. It's not a sin. Many people are like, well, I didn't have a piece about this. To be. Listen, it doesn't matter where you live. You have to love your neighbor. It doesn't matter what career path you are in. You have to glorify God. It doesn't matter who your boss is. You have to be a light. You see, it doesn't matter which nation you're in. God is your goal, your purpose, your heritage, your vision in life. This is your purpose in life. And they had this purpose. That's why they could be so, so immovable even under a Nero. That's why they were absolutely unshakable no matter what it is they faced, even if it was a wild dog or tar and fire. That's the purpose of life, is to glorify Him, even if it means giving your life in that way. So we see that there is a difference between enjoying life and loving life, and enjoying life is to live out this purpose. Because the most enjoyable thing in life is to be fulfilled, and it's impossible to be fulfilled until your life glorifies God. You say that it's impossible possible to have a fulfilled life if the life you have isn't glorifying God because that's why the life was created right we have to learn that meaning in life is what makes it is what gives you this fulfilled life and so God wants us to have an enjoyable life he wants us to enjoy this life how by making sure we are fulfilled by making sure that it's a meaningful life you see, let me show you this way. The person with the greatest amount of responsibility also has the greatest amount of greatest meaning to his life. The person with zero response, none, no, not one responsibility, has a very meaningless life. So it is employing responsibility, becoming responsible that determines the meaningfulness of your life. Responsibility brings meaning. But if you embrace all the wrong responsibilities, it's still meaningless. So when you embrace eternal responsibilities, your life becomes as meaningful as possible. And when your life is meaningful, it is fulfilled. And when it's fulfilled, it is enjoyable. And God has called us to enjoy the life that we have. How? By, by loving God, by giving, by sowing, by preaching, by teaching, by raising up the world or raising others in this world to glorify God. These are all extremely fulfilling things to do. So I want to make sure you know that I believe that God has called us to an enjoyable life. But life is not enjoyable because of entertainment. No, it's enjoyable because of meaning, and meaning fulfills. That's why it's enjoyable. And eternal, mean, eternal responsibilities is what gives you true meaning, and true meaning is what really fulfills you, and that is what 
really makes a life awesome and enjoyable. But the opposite of enjoying life is to love this world. There's a difference. To love this world is to be self-serving. To love this world is to chase after self-gratification. To be self-serving and to chase after gratification. Now that, as you know, wouldn't be a responsible thing. Therefore, there wouldn't be much meaning. Therefore, your purpose isn't fulfilled. Therefore, your life cannot be enjoyed. But people still chase after self-gratification because they're blinded to the fact that that is empty. That's why a man like Nero, in a short lifespan, after trying to gratify himself in so many ways, ends up committing suicide. You see, the devil always uses the same patterns, that pattern of Degregation is listed in Romans chapter 1. And, and this man, prior to committing suicide, after having killed his wife, who was with child, I don't know if I told you, but found a boy that looked like his wife, a young boy, right? Isn't it interesting how society that follows the pattern of Romans chapter 1 ends up there? pedophilia, but it comes past homosexuality, and so self-gratification always ends in insanity, Nebuchadnezzar had it, Nero had it, but it's, it comes through loving the world, so here, through a letter Paul wrote to Timothy, God is showing us the dangers of falling in love with this world. There's a danger. You see, the Apostle Paul said, I have run my race, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. But in another place, he said this. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He gave all credit to God's grace. That is the reason why he was able to run his race. He was, it is the reason why he was able to finish the course. It was the reason why he kept the faith, was the grace of God. And you and I need to do the same. But we are not without responsibility. We are not without responsibility. So I want to share with you three essentials for enduring, enduring to the end. Three responsibilities or four, three essentials that you and I need to put our minds on, we need to think through, we need to embrace, we need to practice, we need to walk out in order to endure to the end which is what the Apostle Paul did. Number one is daily communion with God. You see, Demas didn't just wake up one morning and said, I'm out. That's not when he left. That's when he physically left. He, his heart left long before his feet left. Right? Can I have your attention, everybody? Let me just tell you, people who walk away from God, their hearts are gone long before their feet walk out the building. And I can tell you how it happens, because to me, I love definitions. I always think, okay, what's the difference between being intellectual and smart? What's the difference between being smart and having knowledge? What's the difference between having knowledge and being wise? Said, so I'm thinking, okay, an intellectual person, there are a lot of intellectual person, people that absolutely deny Christ. Well, that's foolish. So there's a lot of foolish intellectuals. 
Then there are people with a lot of knowledge, but they suppress the knowledge. According to Romans chapter 1, they're in trouble. Then there are those people who are wise, and I'm thinking, okay, got it. I drilled, drilled until I got wisdom. That's what people need. What is wisdom? Wisdom is when you're able to use your intellect in order to understand something, so you have understanding, but beyond understanding, you have the ability to take that understanding and now apply it to your life. That's wise. Yes, I got it. And then in my heart came this memory of, well, what about the wisest man that ever lived outside of Jesus? King Solomon. Didn't he also walk away from God? <laughs> so even wisdom is not enough. You need the grace of God, right? But how did Solomon, with all of that wisdom, walk away from God? How did he do it? And I, the only possible answer I have for somebody that wise to still walk away from God and drift is the fact that he didn't lose sight of the big picture. That's not what he went like, oh, yeah, that picture about God and worshiping God and living for God and glorifying God and that I was made for you in His image and likeness in order to reflect His glory. All of that, no, today I'm going to just kind of like say no to that. I'm going to do my own thing. That's not what happened. He didn't just wake up walking away from God the next day. No. He believed all of the above, like many Christians do today, but they get blinded. Not over the big picture. No, God is good. Jesus is the Savior and the Lord. But that next step, they're blinded to that next step. So, people don't realize <laughs> that that next step didn't mean that they completely erased God. It's just that they actually walked into a little bit more darkness. No, I see the big picture. I hope you guys know what I'm talking about. Christians who backslide do this. They see the big picture. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, God is good. Yes, the Bible is true. They get the big picture, but then their eyes are blinded to that next little step. And they take that next little step further into darkness. And here's Solomon. Yes, I believe that God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who wrote the law through Moses, because that's where he was, right? He believed in all of that, but he was blinded to that next step, and he took that next step away from God towards the world. And here's the wisest man that ever lived. God spoke to him. They had a conversation. And God said, you know what? What do you want? And he says, I want wisdom. And God says, because you didn't ask for wealth. You instead asked for wisdom. I will give you both. And they had conversations, yet he still walked away from God. Because it wasn't that he lost sight of the big picture initially. He lost sight of that very next little step. So people make small little alterations in their life thinking that, no, 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 I'm still holding on to the big picture. They just walked into further darkness. Small decisions make big differences. Have you realized? Small choices can cause you to walk further and further into blindness to the point where you get to where even the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, was actually away from God. And here we have the same guy, Demas. Think about it. One day he's on a missionary trip with a great apostle Paul. He's preaching with Paul. Paul writes in a letter, he is my partner. He is my he's a minister with me in the gospel. And then drifts into deception. Just like Demas, one can't have a mentor without ever being mentored. One can have a teacher without ever being taught anything. 
I can only imagine he was a really, really stubborn guy, this Demas. But maybe he was also a, I love you, Paul. I love you, man. I love you, Paul. I love you, man. I love you, Paul. I love you, man. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then one day, Paul goes, where did Demas go? Oh, he left. Wow. So he had a mentor, but he was never mentored. He had a teacher, but he was never taught. He had a leader, but he was never led, except for being led astray. But the Bible says very clearly it's because he loved the world and the things of the world. And John said very clearly, do not love this world. You see, everyone is in love with something. Everybody loves something. So the question is, what do you love? What are you in love with? But you cannot simply decide to not love the world. Because if you hear this message and you read that portion and you see what happened to Demas and you go like, oh, yeah, Jacques, you know what? I'm out. I'm going I'm to stop loving the world today. <laughs> no more loving the world, Jacques. That's it. I'm done. But that's not possible to just say, I'm going to stop loving the world because you cannot just create a vacuum in your heart and leave it empty. Because your heart's always filled with something, even if it's self. For us to stop loving the world, we have to start loving God. In order to stop loving one thing, you have to actually put your affections on another thing. So the more I love God, the less I will love the world. And the more I, I love the world, the less I will be able to love God. My heart cannot love both. Your heart cannot love both. James 4 verse 4 says this. Check it out. People don't like reading James. Did you know that um, some of even my heroes, greatest heroes throughout the Reformation, some actually believed that the book of James shouldn't be in the Bible because it was so contrary to some of what they believed. <laughs> but listen to what the book of James says in James 4, 4. You unfaithful people, don't you know that the love for this evil world is hatred toward God. The love that you have for this evil world is hatred toward God. That's how you hate God. People go like, I don't hate God. No, but you do love the world. And if you love the world, the Bible says you hate God. I want to read it to you out of the TLB, okay, different translation. It says, you are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Don't you realize that making friends with God's enemies, the evil pleasures of this world, makes you an enemy of God, an enemy of God, an enemy of God? And then those are the people who usually jump in services and love singing, I am a friend of God. No, the Bible says if you love the world, you're an enemy of God. I say it again, that if, you, if your aim is to enjoy the evil pleasure of the unsaved world, you cannot also be a friend of God, end quote. James 4, 4. So what does it mean to... Uh, uh, wrong question. So our time that we have daily in communion with God is time where love for God can be refreshed. Uh, if you missed it, I just did, we just did two weeks, right, through a series called The Triumphant Mind, loving God with your mind. Very clearly... The Bible says, Jesus speaking, He says, You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. The question is, how do you love God with your mind? It's actually impossible to love anything if you didn't first have a mind. It is your mind 
that imprints upon your heart what you have viewed in the person you now love. I see, I love, what I see imprints upon my heart and my heart responds with love. That's why it's so important for us to preach the attributes of God. But for most part, it's too boring for people because they want to see what good they have and what great they can get. And, but when you preach about the attributes of God, who God is, that, if you wrap your mind around it, imprints upon your heart just how great He is. And you, couldn't ha- you can't stop yourself from praising Him. When you wrap your mind around God and who He really is and who He really saved, <laughs> if you know who you are and you realize that He saved you as you were, you can't help your heart can't help but just give thanks. Praise His greatness and His goodness towards you, right? So we have to learn to love God with our minds. How? By wrapping our minds around who God is. Who the Bible says God is. So we have to learn to spend time with God that way so that when we do, in the time we spend with Him, our love increases for Him. And as our love increases for Him, our love for the world will dissipate. If I was not spending time connecting with my wife, I couldn't possibly learn to love her more. Time matters. In the same way, we are not able to love God more without hearing Him speak to us and having time of Him speaking, oh, us speaking back to Him. You know, I need to just say this, though, because I think it's so important for us to hear this over and over again, but God speaks to us through His Scriptures. So if you're going to have this communication with God like like a husband and a wife has communication and within the communication, love elevates. So you and I need to have communication with God and as we communicate with God on a daily basis, our love, my love for Him elevates. He already loves me. But how do I hear from God? How do we communicate? Many people communicate with God through dreams. Many people think that God spoke to them because they watched this movie and they really, and God spoke to them. No, God does not speak to you that way. <laughs> Many people go like, you know, I was walking through the forest and God spoke to me and I realized this is what I need to do. God doesn't, now I'm not eliminating the Holy Ghost leading a person. A Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost always leads you into holiness. He is the spirit of holiness. If you are led by the spirit of God, you will be led into holy living. The Holy Spirit of God always leads you into righteous choices and decisions. It has to do with your character. You're led by the Spirit. But to hear from God is not the fact that you, you know, took a walk through the forest or you have feelings or imaginations. That is called pagan worship. Pagan worship. Cut it out. Those are the self-made gods that people listen to and they follow. No, we listen to scriptures. God has already spoke. He's already spoken. And people hear more from God by walking through a forest than what they do by opening up the scriptures. And that is so concerning. Those people do not endure. I'm just telling you. They don't don't stay the course. There's an inconsistency about them. They're always falling out the boat. But if you say, okay, I'm going to start hearing from God, first and foremost, Scripture. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, 
that if you do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the what renewing of your mind according to scriptures, and when you do, then you will know the will of God. Scripture is never excluded out of hearing from God. And then, of course, when we pray, we speak back to God. So God speaks to us, we speak to Him. He speaks to us through the Scripture, we speak to Him in prayer. And in this relationship, love can be cultivated. If you wonder why your heart is not on fire for God, then there's your answer. There's your answer. Without a daily time of communion with God, we put ourselves in great danger as Demas did, as Demas did, as he walked with Paul. So the second thing, the second essential for enduring to the end, which is my prayer for you, which is my prayer for my wife, which is my prayer for my family, my children, which is my prayer for myself, I pray that for you too. Remember Jesus said, Peter, Satan has come to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Satan has come to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Many people are being sifted. People are sifted through COVID. People are sifted through easy times. People are sifted through hard times. You know the big trend? The big trend is, oh no, COVID's, you know, the church hasn't been oppressed. You, you can be a Christian. You are the church, don't you know that? You can be the church on your couch. Be the church. No, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you are a member within a church, and the word church is the word ecclesia, and the word ecclesia actually defines what the church is, which is a public gathering together of the saints. And so I, I want to say that because I want to give honor today to a minister who has withstood the storms of persecution throughout his life, and John MacArthur, who's, who's a tremendous encouragement You know, um, we're just so grateful that God has done so much through that man's ministry, and even at the end of his life, you know, God can still use him in such a great way. But they won the court case a few days ago, and um, because really, just a couple of months, pot was illegal, now it's essential. The church has been essential for thousands of years, now suddenly it's unessential. Now you can't sing. Now you can't do certain things, but within guidelines, of course. Within guidelines, of course, I understand that. Many people, many people die from alcohol. No guidelines. Many people die from secondhand smoking. No guidelines. Thousands are dying from abortion. No guidelines. Lesser, less guidelines all the time. And this is the thing. If you think, if you think, that is, those are innocent mistakes, they are not. To try and silence the church, which is the last front that God has erected to push evil back out of society. The first front, conscience. But it's been destroyed. It's been destroyed. Second, barrier that God erects to push evil out of your life is parenting, the rod, which has been made illegal for most part. The third erection, third wall that was erected uh, to push out evil from our society is the police. 
bear the sword, not in vain, but they are the ministers of God to bring God's wrath on the evildoer that's been pushed out of the way. And the final wall of it that was erected to push evil or to keep evil out is the church. Now the church is not a sing. The church is not a me. The church is, you know, is the number one cause for all the problems that's happening. It's just a very systematic evil push towards complete anarchy as far as evil is concerned. So the first thing we have to do to stay the course during all this time is you have to spend time with God. The second thing that you have to do in order to stay the course is that you have to appropriate the gospel. We need to learn to live by the gospel every day of our lives. I always used to look at the gospel as a message to the unbeliever. Like, oh no, in here, we just talk about Christian psychology. How to feel better about what's going on in your life. And then use scriptures. And then hopefully you will have greater hope when you leave. But the gospel is meant for people to go preach it outside of the four walls of the church. But really the gospel is for you and me every day. Not back in 1970 when I first prayed the sinner's prayer. That's not what the gospel was for. The gospel is for your whole entire life. I've realized that the Bible says to us that we have to believe the gospel, proclaim the gospel, preach the gospel, but also obey the gospel. We have to believe the gospel, proclaim the gospel, preach the gospel, and also obey the gospel. As a matter of fact, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey, obey the gospel. A lot of people say obedience is out the door because it's a new covenant. Nope. He will punish those who do not obey the gospel. 1 Peter 4 verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? The gospel. So what does it mean to obey the gospel? Like, I thought the gospel was just to be believed. Well, to obey the gospel is to submit to the demands of the gospel. That's what it is. The gospel demands that you turn from yourself as Savior and you turn to Christ as Savior. The gospel demands that you transition your faith, your faith off of self onto Christ. The gospel de demands that you deny self as your own Savior and proclaim Christ as the only Lord and Savior. So why do I need the gospel on a daily basis? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God that saves you. It is God's power in your life, the gospel. Counsel is not God's power in your life. Most people think they're going to get healed by counsel. No, you're going to get healed by the gospel. That is the power of God in your life. So why do I need it? Because it's the power of God. It is by believing and obeying the gospel daily that I live with the assurance that God loves me. Check this out. People go to counsel. Counselor spends half his time trying to tell you, God loves you. Don't you realize this? God loves you. You've got to believe it. God loves you. And then you walk out the door and somebody stole your car. You go like, I thought God loves me. <laughs> it's like, well, if I can talk you into one belief, then somebody else can talk you out of that same belief. But if you appropriate the gospel on a daily basis and you look at the cross and you say God's perfect, the perfect Lamb of God, slain for me, 
a person dead in my sins, an enemy of God, you foreknew me. And when you foreknew me, you foreloved me. And when you foreloved me, you predestined me. And you already knew that you were going to send Jesus to justify me on a cross. And that's why you called me with the gospel. And you're going to glorify me. And it's all you're doing because you chose me. How can I not be thankful? How can I look at all of that and think, do you love me? How can I? If anybody understands this gospel and appropriates this gospel, not just during communion weekend, but every day of their lives, how can they look at that and go, God, I just, I just don't know. Do you really love me? I'm not sure. You see, that person doesn't have to be told God loves them. They know God loves them, not because they were told. It's because they know the gospel. The gospel tells them that. Therefore, the gospel is not for you back in the day when you gave your life to the Lord. No, the gospel is for you every day of your life. You have to appropriate it. You have to obey it throughout your life. And to obey it means you submit to its demands, which is to keep your eye on it. You see, it is by believing and obeying the gospel daily that I live with this confidence that I'm acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. I don't need somebody to keep on telling me that I'm acceptable if I appropriate the gospel on a daily basis because it's the gospel that tells me I'm acceptable to God, not a counselor. You see, it is by believing and obeying the gospel daily that I live with a divine affirmation that I am forgiven. I don't have to wonder about my forgiveness if I appropriate the gospel on a daily basis. So therefore, I know daily I'm loved by God. I know daily that I'm accepted by God. I know daily that I'm forgiven by God. I know daily that I have right standing with God. I know daily that I have eternal security with God. You can be so confident and so completely whole and, and live with such a brave perspective of life if you can appropriate the gospel on a daily basis. Obey it. In other words, submit to its demands. Does this make sense to you? I've realized through many years of counseling people that that's actually the answer. <laughs> Somebody might come like, yeah, you know what? I just, I just have a really, really low self-esteem. Well, let me explain to you the gospel. Somebody comes... You know what, I just feel extremely rejected. Well, let me give you the gospel. No, 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 I've heard the gospel. I'm, I'm feeling rejected by a person. Well, let me give you the gospel. Because the gospel is what fixes that problem. If I can talk you out of feeling rejected, guess what? You're going to go home and your husband is going to remind you that you're rejected. <laughs> you know, somebody else is going to talk you right back out of it. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, the life I now live in the body, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in who? The Son of God. Here's Paul writing this letter. The life I now live, not the fact that 1970. No, no, the life I now live, I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here Paul speaks of the present time. The present time. He saw justification not as a past event. No, no, no. He saw it as a present reality. Seeing yourself daily clothed with the righteousness of God. Daily. Will keep you in the love of God. And you cannot love the world if you love God. Remember. This is why Demas left. He started loving the world. Why did he start loving the world? Because he fell out of love with God. 
The same is true for you and I. And I'm explaining to you that if you appropriate the gospel on a daily basis, you couldn't help but love God. And if you love God, you don't have to fight your love for the world. It won't even be there. Your love for God is what expels your love for the world. That's why I'm saying, <laughs> well, I hope you connect the dots. Number three, the last one, is daily surrender to the sovereignty of God. So these three things we have to do. The first is we have to daily communicate with God. Number two, we have to daily appropriate the gospel because it is God's power that heals us from low self-esteem and rejection and everything else. But number three, we have to daily surrender to God's sovereignty. This is the thing that makes you live free. <laughs> this is the thing that goes, you know what? Okay, yeah, everything's burning. Yeah, churches, you know, uh, Nero is crushing the churches. And you know what? I'm in prison, but you know what? Wow, am I free. Wow, do I experience freedom here today. When, when in fact, most people who are completely free have no freedom because they don't trust in the sovereignty of God. It is you believing and putting your faith in the sovereignty of God that makes you free no matter what prison you're sitting in. And no matter how free you are, in which country you live, you might even live right here in Schaumburg as free as what we are and not be free because evil surrounds you. And you don't know what it means to trust in the sovereignty of God. So many people are pained by the sinful actions of others. Especially today. Oh, people, oh. They can hurt so many people because they say somebody hurt them. Justifiably so. Legally so. They can go and destroy lives because somebody hurt them. And so many people are pained by the sinful actions of other people. Imagine the seemingly hopeless situation that Paul and the rest of the church were dealing with during Nero's reign. I mean, imagine that kind of pain. Okay, well, let me say this. Imagine today's church under Nero. <laughs> imagine. Imagine this culture, this Christian society that we live in under Nero. Yet, Paul and those churches were filled with hope. Just read the letters. They were filled with hope. He says, oh, I'm looking forward to, you know, Jesus handing out the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. I don't know if Demas can pray that prayer. I'm not saying Demas is doomed for hell. I'm just saying, do you think Demas can pray that prayer? after loving the world and deserting Paul in the ministry? That's why we have to endure. You don't have to be in this church to endure the faith and to, you know, but you have to endure with God and with the kingdom of God and the church of God and the people of God. Yet here's this group of people, they lived with, filled with hope. They lived their lives eternally meaningful. But Proverbs 16.4 explains something to me because I thought about this. I thought, God, those Christians, they, they were like the real deal. I, sometimes I just look so forward to being able to sit with anybody who was in one of those churches in those days 
who stayed faithful. And just tell me about what that was like under Nero, seeing so much evil under a man like Nero marrying a little boy and burning the righteous and exalting evil. Like, what was it like being a Christian at that time, saying, in all things, give thanks? Are you kidding me? What was it like in that? How did you do it? How did you guys get that done? But if you understand the sovereignty of God, all things change. Everything changes. You see, only a Reformed theologian can answer the, this, can answer the atheist who says, how come... If God is good, is there so much evil? How come, if God is good to a faithful church 2,000 years ago, is there a Nero? Explain that to me. Armenians cannot explain it. Reformed theology can. Because Reformed theology exclusively believes in the, in, in the total deprivation of man. And man is evil through and through. You're not as evil as you could be, but evil has touched every part of who you are. And if you, like Nero, started stepping into a little bit more darkness every single day, eventually it'll be so dark, and eventually you'll be so corrupted in your mind, and eventually, according to Romans chapter 1, your mind will become defective, and you couldn't even see the difference between right and wrong. All you'll be interested in is... Self-gratification. I, I don't care what's right, what's wrong. As long as I can be gratified now with what I want. Now you see it on TV all day. Self-gratification. And that thing there, crazy doesn't, doesn't heal, just so you know, except through the cross. And what I'm saying to you is the writing's on the wall. These things aren't getting better. They're not going to go away. They may subside a little bit, but they're still in the hearts of evil people who are being allowed to grow in darkness. But you go like, God, I thought you're good. Why so much evil? Proverbs 16, 4 tells us, if you understand the sovereignty of God, you get it. Proverbs 16, 4 says, the Lord has made all for himself. All. Really? Nero? He made all for himself. Really? Judas? Did Jesus not say, I have not lost anyone, not one whom you gave me, except for that son, and son of perdition who you chose before time? Oh, God created all for himself? What about Pharaoh? But doesn't the Bible say, for God hardened his heart? God was the one who hardened Pharaoh. God, you made all, it says it, the Lord made all for himself. And then it says, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. He made them. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's humbling, folks. It's humbling, family. That God's sovereignty decided what you didn't make a decision over, that you are male, that you are female, the nationality that you are. God sovereignly decided when you would live and that you would live here, now. 
with who you are because He made you for this purpose to glorify Him as you are right here, right now. You see, God is sovereign, but man is responsible. And that's why Paul can say, I'm looking forward to that crown, while Demas probably cannot say that. Because one was responsible, the other one was irresponsible. Yes, God is sovereign. But when you see the evil, remind yourself, the Lord has made all for Himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Other translation says, yes, God made even the wicked. He, God even made Nero. Another translation says, for the day of judgment. God made darkness so you can shine. So you can be purified. So you can be refined in what in where you actually stand. I love how on CNN, John MacArthur was asked last week, is this persecution of the church, is, are these dark days? Are these bad days for the church? He said, no. No, these are the greatest days. When you're told you're not allowed to meet, when you're told you're not allowed to sing, when you're threatened with being imprisoned as he is, are these dark days? He said, no. No, no, these are the greatest days because it forces you to be refined in where you stand and what you believe. Now, let's see who believes. If I tell you I believe during good days, you don't necessarily have to believe me. <laughs> it's what happens to me during hard days. Now you know if I believe or not. If you cannot see God to ultimately be sovereign, you are tempted to become bitter. Because you look at Nero and you go like, oh, I hate. And you look at the government and you go like, I despise that woman. I despise that man. You look at what's happening and, and you just you become so resentful to people. And the media wants you to do that. But if you cannot see God, that He's ultimately sovereign, even during Nero, even during Pharaoh, even in regards to the son of perdition, Judas. Even now, if you can't see that God is sorry, He's always God. He was never not God. He always rules. He has never not ruled and reigned. From the top of heaven to the bottom of hell, He is God. He always has been, is, and always will be. He's God today. And so therefore, sovereignly, He has chosen you to be who you are now in this day, in this age, in this place. Trust Him. He's sovereign. No one can pluck you from His hand. He's sovereign. No one's going to make history outside of God. He's sovereign. He's not shocked by what He sees. He's sovereign. You know, people go like, oh, you know, hey, if only there could be a couple of blind eyes open here, you know how packed this place will be? True. If we were able to take a man sitting in a wheelchair and make him walk, do you know how packed this place will be? That's a miracle. If a deaf ear would pop open, I mean, this place would be full. And those are miracles. What's a miracle? Something that goes against nature, overrides the natural. That's a miracle. Jesus walks on water. He overrides what's naturally not possible. Okay, but let me tell you what is a great, great miracle. Are you with me? Here's the greatest miracle of all time, outside of the resurrection, is the fact that God 
has the ability to take you and all of your very, very dumb decisions you made throughout your life, every wicked thing you have participated in, every exit you took that you shouldn't have taken, He's able to take you who love Him and not the world, who love Him and not the world, He's able to take you and make all things work together for the good to those who love Him. He can take your nonsense. He can take your mess-ups. He can take your brokenness. He can take everything that you have destroyed in life and the years you have wasted and sovereignly He can take it all and say, She loves me. I'll make every piece of that brokenness part of the puzzle. That's a miracle. Like who's able to put your life together like that and make you come out victorious but God? You see, He's able to make all things work together for the good. To those who love Him. Who are those who love Him? Those who obviously don't love the world. Joseph is a classic example of that. How everything seemed like a failure. But in God's providence and in God's ability, took a man who loved them and made all of it work together for the good because he loved them and he was called according to his purposes. And I close with this Psalm, Psalm 37 23. It says, The steps. Can everybody say the steps? Your steps. Let's all say the steps. The steps of a man are established by God. I don't establish my steps. God establishes my steps. So I want to encourage you, live with hope. Why can you have hope? Because you've chosen to love Him. And you know that you're going to endure. Why? Because you've chosen to love Him instead of love the world. I can't stop loving the world until I learn to love Him. I love Him. Why? Because I know how to discipline my mind. I wrap my mind around who He is and my heart responds accordingly. Amen. Father God, today, I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You, God, that every person You call will endure. They will persevere, Father. I thank You, Lord, that even though Satan has decided to sift God, you will save as we pray. God, I thank you that every single one of us will plan to end victoriously. We know, God, we can fly an airplane perfectly, but if we don't know how to land, if we don't stay the course, we are not fit for the kingdom of God. And I thank you, Father God, that every person here today will have a great understanding as to what causes them to fall in love with the world. And anybody who falls out of love with God, their hearts turn away from God, automatically turns to the world. And I pray, God, that you protect us from that. Help us, Father, as we remain in communication with you daily. So our love for you can stay consistent and growing. Help us, Father, to every day appropriate the gospel 
so that our hearts can naturally respond with love, gratitude, thanksgiving, faithfulness and commitment to you because we appropriate the gospel. We fall in love with you. Help us, Father God, thirdly, to surrender to your sovereignty on a daily basis. Oh God, this is where we can relax and say, God, you're God. Oh, nobody can take us from you. Nobody can override your will in our lives. We trust in you, no matter what the outcome and no matter when the outcome takes place. In Jesus' name, amen.